Good morning, my friends. Welcome to PIMC. I'm Robert Beatty, and sitting to my left is Jason Siff, who I'll introduce to you in just a few moments. Uh, anybody here for the first time today? It looks like some fresh faces. One here. <laughs> uh -huh. No, 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 this person beside you put up your hand this much. I promise we won't conscript you or you know, drag you into the cult. So once you walk in the front door, it's all over, right? Tell us what's wrong with you and we'll tell you how to fix it. So, how wonderful of you to come on this Mother's Day morning with beautiful sunshine. What a commitment to the Dharma. Please take a moment, you, please remain in silence if you wish, inwardly, but if, that's, if it's okay to do this, I invite you to turn to the person beside you and share your name and one something of beauty you experienced or saw in the last day. So take a moment to just greet and Test one, there we go. Uh, for 2,600 years now, people have taken refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and there's a whole lot to be said about that, but the simple form is, since life is so utterly unstable, in what can we take refuge? You know, when, when the carpet keeps getting pulled out from under us, as it does, what could we possibly take refuge in? And uh, the Buddhist world has come up with this very beautiful formula, which is taking refuge in that which is awake, that which knows in the Buddha. And then with that awakeness, with that which knows, what will we discover? And that's the Dharma, the way things actually are. 
And the great relief in that is that in our meditation we don't have to be improving ourselves. We can simply be awakening, oh, it's like this. This personality is like, the world is like this, my experience is like this. And then the refuge in the Sangha is in community, and boy, do we need each other. One of the reasons it makes sense to make a commitment to come regularly on Sunday mornings and to have a meditation buddy is because life comes along and makes it really hard to practice. And so when we have community, we actually support one another and uh, do continue. And then I always like to mention the community that we're, we're really part of, the great community of life on earth. So in this moment, we are absolutely intercon... There's no way we cannot be totally interbeing with our brothers and sisters of the air, the earth, and the water. So our practice is also intended to bring us back into that realization. So I invite you to join me in this. This is a modern rendition of The Refuges by a woman named Betsy Rose. And uh, it's a really nice way to harmonize our hearts together and to sing a little bit. I take refuge in the Buddha, the one who shows me the way in this life. Namo Buddhaya, Namo Buddhaya, Namo Buddhaya. I take refuge in the Dharma, the way of understanding and love. Namo Dharmaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Dharmaya. I take refuge. In the Sangha, the community of mindful harmony. Namo Sanghaya, Sanghaya, Namo Sanghaya. And once more, I take refuge in the Buddha. The one who shows me the way in this life. Namo Buddhaya, Namo Buddhaya, Namo Buddhaya. I take refuge in the Dharma. The way of understanding and love. Namo Dharmaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Dharmaya. I take refuge in the Sangha. The community of mindful harmony. Namo Sangaya, Namo Sangaya, Namo Sangaya.
So a few words about Jason. Jason is one of those people that I haven't known for long, but I feel like I've known for a long time. There's a lot, the, the time that we have spent together, there's quite a, a marvelous connection and uh, recognition of the Dharma that flows so deeply through him. So uh, Jason was a monk in Sri Lanka during the 80s where he trained in the Mahasi Saida method, uh, insight meditation. And uh, <clears throat> in the 90s he studied counseling psychology, which is such a wonderful thing to have both Eastern and Western uh, practices. And he's quite a writer. Uh, he's written two books that have been published, recollective uh, two books on recollective awareness meditation, which is his, uh, his particular slant on the Dharma and teaching. Uh, the books have been published by Shambhala. One is called uh, Unlearning Meditation, and Thoughts Are Not the Enemy. Imagine that, thoughts not being the enemy. Phew, what a relief. Uh, he's trained teachers. He lives in Idlewild, California, uh, in the mountains above Palm Springs. And uh, he's here today. And he's going to uh, introduce us to the recollective meditation practice. And this, we didn't test this, but. Um, I used it here last time, oh, many yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. If it gets right on and then down there, it won't pop. Hopefully. Okay. If you mean my voice won't pop, or the thing won't pop out. Okay. Um, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, actually, uh, I think I met Robert first at a Buddhist conference in the 1990s, and. Um, uh, we had you know, various conversations over the years, and then I did um, speak here, I think about five or six years ago in the evening. Uh, maybe some of you remember. It's a very nice group. Um, so uh, what, um, what I understand the schedule to be is um, that we would uh, meditate now for, what, 40 minutes? Okay, about 40 minutes. Um, and then after that, we'd have a short break or movement. movement. And then um, I'll be giving a talk. And I hope you can stay for the talk. Um, I know it's a lovely day out there and very tempting. Um, I'm tempted too. Uh, but <laughs> here we are. Yeah, exactly. Yes, lock everybody. Well, you said it's not a cult. So <laughs> you have to keep that word, you know. Um, so. Uh, if we could, um, uh, maybe for my benefit, I don't know about yours, but to turn off the lights. I sort of like um, dim lights, oh, well, no lights. Um, and then uh, just adopt a comfortable posture, whatever posture you like to meditate in. Um, sit in a, in a way that's um, comfortable, that's not a strain if you need to lie down or have bolsters, whatever you need. Um, and with this kind of meditation, if you do need to move, just move slowly, quietly, and just change your posture to make yourself more comfortable. Uh, usually, uh, meditate with eyes closed, 
So if you want to close your eyes, that would be nice. Um, mostly because when we have our eyes closed, it's much easier just to feel the body, to get a sense of inwardness. Um, and bring your attention to the touch of your hands. Your hands either touching each other or resting on your legs. And just notice what that external contact is like. The weight of your hands. The kind of like maybe the way it feels against the fabric. And in this kind of meditation, we're going to use that external touch of the hands instead of the breath. So when you want to come back to something, just come back to that touch. But the purpose of this is to really be kind to yourself. And the kindest thing we can do is to allow ourselves to be however we are, to let the thoughts we have come in and let ourselves think about them, whatever we're feeling, whatever we're hearing. Not to be in control of our experiences, much as to be receptive and open to it. So today, if you haven't allowed yourself to think about things in meditation before, let yourself think. Let your mind just do what it would like to do. It can plan. It can reminisce. You can have conversations with people. Whatever your mind wants to do. And every so often, you can just gently bring your attention back to the touch of your hands. And if that is hard to be aware of, you can also be aware of the touch of your feet against the cushion or the ground, or your rear on the seat or the cushion. Just some external contact of your body.
If you're not used to allowing your thoughts and your thinking seems to be loud, the voice seems to be active, just be very kind to that voice. You don't want it to go away, you just want to be friendlier towards it. And if you start to feel sleepy, start to drift, just allow yourself to go towards sleep. There's no need to try to wake yourself up. And I'll be quiet now for maybe a good 10 minutes or so.
remember to be kind to yourself. If you need to move because of pain, you can. If you have any feelings of frustration or tension or pressure, just be very kind to that part of you. Uh, if anything bothers you or whatever, the, whatever is going on, it's okay. And also, you have, you have permission to do whatever practice you would like to do as well. Don't feel like you have to just stay with the instructions I give. At any point, you can choose to do something else. And we'll sit silence until the end of the sitting.
Okay. Um, before you do anything, um, just take a couple of minutes and reflect back on the meditation sitting and just see what you can remember about it. And if you want to write anything, you can. But just recollect and just see what comes to mind um, from having meditated this past half hour. Often at this time, Jim Dalton is here and leads us in some mindful Qigong. He's not here today. And I am going to uh, do my best to channel Ruth Dennison and do some movement a la Ruth Dennison. So, Dalink, become aware of where you're sitting. <laughs> Become aware of your buttocks on the carpet, on the floor, on the cushion. And then bring your awareness into that which you speak of or think of as your right hand. And let that right hand and arm begin to rise. Now, I can't do Ruth very well because she would see someone in the room and say too fast it, it just doesn't work for me so I'll, I'll just do it part way so let it rise until it comes to well above your head and then let's let it make a circle one way or the other a big circle be and be present in your body and let your whole body be involved let just be here in this circling arm and then let it circle the other way be here and if you come to a place where it would be nice to stretch out that way let it stretch a bit uh, 
And then letting this hand find some graceful way to kind of drift down. Until it finds itself completely at rest and then let that arm completely relax. And notice the mysterious thing that you can do, which is to shift awareness from that hand to the other one. How do you do that? It's weird, isn't it? You just become aware of the other hand. And now let that hand begin to do its kind of moving and let it become very light and let it find its way up. And let the fingers wiggle around a little bit. Let the wrist bend. And then stretch this one up really high to the sky. Stretch through the roof. And then let this hand make a big circle. Be here in this moment of this life of the hand. And as Jason was emphasizing, you don't need to try to control your thoughts. If thoughts are there, they're there and you watch them, let them happen. And then they vanish and then you're back in your hand. And now let's do something rather fun, which is to reach up above you. It's like being on the subway and grab the bar and then let's use that bar to pull ourselves up. And I, actually, it might be fun to be on, be on the subway and let it jiggle around and let it be the New York subway where it makes the loud screeching noises and just let's ride the subway for a stop or two here. Holding on. Sudden stops. <laughs> but feel the body. And then letting go of that and then just coming into the body and let it twist a bit. Twist and flex. Clearly there's no way to do this wrong. There's no... There's no uh, judge. Let your arms move in any way they'd like to move. The body bend how it would like. Notice where your feet are rooted to the floor. And I invite you to let your arms go really far off to the right and up and then back and then down across the front and then far up to the left and then down like this. It's like a giant figure eight in a way. And let your body twist, let your spine bend. And let's pause off to the right sometime. Hands up high to the right. All the weight in the right foot, left foot light. And then going the other side, the same. Left foot. And then let's oscillate back one way to one side and then the other. And see if you can notice the life of, the life that's in your hands. Notice the middle finger of both hands and how you can trace 
you could, let's actually, let's try this. I remember Ruth doing this one time. Write your name in the air in front of you, you know, like with a sparkler. Write your name. And then your last name, with the other hand, your last name. <laughs> Silly, isn't it? <laughs> all right. And then let's let all this moving come to a stop. Stopping. And notice what it is to balance. I've just watched my uh, grandson, who's now 14 months almost, the last, about, about a month ago, he broke through into walking. And actually, isn't it wonderful? I had my camera going the moment when he got the first real steps. And his glee, that... He's now become a terror because he can go... <laughs> he tears around. But it's quite an achievement. It takes months of practice to get the legs strong enough and the balance to work. So maybe let your eyes close and be in the body. and see that it doesn't stand still. In order to balance, it's a dynamic attentiveness. You can feel your feet and your legs and your knees and your pelvis and hips, your torso, shoulders, arms, hands, fingers. And sitting on top, there's this big heavy ball that we balance. And let's see just how still we can stand. Let your breathing continue. Notice how the mind may well still think thoughts. Notice that there is this body standing here and it is, it is one thing which is life. Profoundly alive. Actually, there can be no adjective, can there? It's just life. And now let's let the right hand and fingers begin to wiggle a bit. And then the wrist, and then the forearm, bending the elbow, and then let the shoulder become involved, and let the whole thing just kind of move around. Notice how still the rest of the body is, but how simply with intention, there's something that we do, and then this hand starts to go a little nuts, and. And then all of a sudden, just drop it. And then to not leave out the other side, fingers wiggling, thumbs, wrists, elbows, upper arm, and then the whole thing kind of can go a little berserk. Notice it'll go wherever you think it. 
wants to go have an image. Oh, it could be behind. Oh, look, it does that. And then front, top, side. And then stop. Or as Ruth would say, stop. Stop. And now maybe let your eyes open because it helps a lot with balance. And let your left foot start to move around in the air. And then the knee and then the hip and then let this leg kind of go shaky, loosey. And then stop. <laughs> and then the other one. And then all of it together, arms, hands, both legs. <laughs> Just shake it out. <sighs> And then stop. Breathing. And now please take a couple of minutes to just sense how does this particular body in this particular moment want to stretch or move, and then grant that.
find our way back to sitting. And Jason will join us in a moment. Wow, the sunshine pulls people out of here. the button to speak. Thought maybe you didn't, maybe didn't need announcements today. Good morning, Sangha. Oh, I'm back. I missed you while I was away. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I was away. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah maybe nobody noticed that I was away. Um, I went to, one of the places I went to was the Intersanga gathering for Insight Meditation Centers down in Santa Cruz, and I met people from, oh, 10 or 12 different Sanghas around the United States and Canada. And you know, there are other people out there doing what we do. I know it's kind of hard to believe, like we're off on our own little planet, but they really are out there. They even have people doing announcements, too. Um, but it's good to be back. So what is going on? Uh, Jim is going to be doing his uh, movement Qigong half-day retreat next Saturday, 519. Details are on the website. We also have flyers out there, too. Uh, on June 2nd, please save the date, volunteer retreat for all the volunteers at PIMC. Anyone who volunteers has volunteered at PIMC, is, can attend. It'll be with Robert. I think he's still working on a theme. 
If he has one, he hasn't told me about it yet, but there will be a theme, I'm sure, Robert. There will be a theme, right? Life in the present moment. And um, just out of, just for grins, who here volunteers or has volunteered in the Sangha? Look around. These are the people that keep this place going. Give them a little mental nod of appreciation. And uh, any, any help that we can get is great. Then on Sunday, June 3rd, there's going to be a Portland Buddhist festival in the park from 11 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. It cuts into our day a little bit, but I am trying to work it out with them to have a table there. If anyone would like to take a shift at the table so you can tell people about what we do, please come and see me. Well, it's, it's um, if you look under... It, it's not, yeah, it, it, that's what they're calling it, Portland Buddhist Festival in the park. And it is a park, I think, up in northeast Portland. There are details at uh, portlandbuddhistfestival.com, all one word. And if you want more information, let me know. I, I haven't posted anything about the website because it's not our event. I'm just letting you know. But it's pretty easy to find details about it on the Internet. What's that? June, June 3rd. It's... The same, it's a Sunday, so it cuts into our morning, but it goes until 4.30, so you can still make it. Um, and then also on Sunday the 3rd, we've got the first Sunday PIMC orientation with Robert. If you've never had the orientation before, by all means come. And then on June 10th, the second Sunday, we've got our second Sunday potluck. We've got a potluck today. That'll be the next one. And then Sunday, uh, July 8th through July 20th, the Mountain Waters Retreat with Robert. And I haven't heard anything to indicate that it's closed. Is it still open? There are still a few spots open. Um, and then uh, some other miscellaneous. So Jason has some books for sale. They're over there on the back table. There's an envelope there where you can put your money. If all you have is plastic, come and see me and I can get our card swiper out so that you can get one of those. Um, for hospitality, we've got hospitality after Jason shares with us. Please come and enjoy, enjoy food with us, share food with us in conversation, get to know one another. Um, if you wish to engage with this community at a deeper level, please consider volunteering. And if you want to volunteer, Kirsten, our volunteer coordinator, I don't see her anywhere, but you would contact her, and uh, her information is on the website on our contact page. And it's a wonderful way to get to know people, which really is the most important thing. Yeah, we get some work done, but we also have fun doing it. That's the most important part about it. Let's see. Um, we do six weekly sits a week. And you can find out more about those on the website. If you're looking for something a little more intimate, we can accommodate you. We also have spiritual friends groups. If you're looking to do something in a small group of people to discuss the Dharma, read a book, do some meditation on your own schedule, there are groups out there, they're on the website. If you'd like to start a group, please come and see me and we can arrange that. And then let's see what else. Um, we've got a lot of donations for our transitions project to help the homeless, help them get back on track. If you have any, any things that you don't need, they can definitely use them. We also have Dharma consults that are available on request. If you have an issue coming up in your practice, or if you want to start a practice, 
in a sort of abbreviated kind of way, please contact me and I can set you up with one of our teachers. And then finally, uh, if you have any questions about anything having to do with this place, if you want to connect with this place at a deeper level, if you want to get to know place, access teachings, please come and see me. My name is Avi. I have office hours in the mornings, Monday through Thursday. And it is my pleasure to help you get more out of this community as much as you want. So blessings to you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful sunny day. does sound better. Um, I usually give short talks, so um, I'll talk maybe for 15 or 20 minutes, and what um, I usually find very stimulating and that actually gets whatever ideas I want to get across um, better is to answer questions. Um, so be happy to respond to any questions you have or Anything also that came out of your meditation sitting in trying uh, the instructions that I gave you. So, um, last night I was uh, reading an article um, that had to do with a study on human faces. Um, and it was basically about uh, how certain indigenous people um, when they look at uh, fa human faces, other people's faces, um, they don't necessarily see an emotion. They instead see um, an action, an intention, something that somebody wants to communicate socially. Um, so, for example, if someone had an expression that we would associate with fear, um, somebody might actually instead see uh, somebody who was maybe desperate or aggressive or something else. When someone's smiling, they might see someone who is actually laughing, which is really interesting because in Indian languages, in um, India, the word to smile and the word to laugh are actually the same word. So what, um, what this made me think of is that here we have in the West been conditioned and brought up to look at each other's faces and try to read emotions. Um, thinking that we're actually seeing somebody who's sad or happy or afraid or things like that. And so that's been part of our, say, overlay, some of our kind of social conditioning. Uh, we even have, of course, in these emoticons and, and other th things that people are using, you know, to um, express a feeling. Um, and one thing about this study that I thought was interesting, too, around that is that um, the real question around survival is why would we want others to know our innermost feelings? Why would we put that right on our faces? Um, what we want other people to know socially is basically uh, what they can do for us. 
um, you know, or how to treat us, or, you know, we want to, to do something that is forward within the relationship we're entering into. Um, so that's what we will tend to express on our faces. We might express, you know, that um, we're, uh, you know, how do you say, expression of maybe encouragement to somebody or expression of, you know, uh, a way of getting somebody to feel like they should like you or trust you. And I think we just do this naturally. And I think we respond to people that way. Um, but whenever I read this kind of study and look at this, I... I'm reminded that um, often we go into our experiences with some, uh, some ideas about them which may not bear out, which may not be true about those experiences. And if it's happening in the outer world with our faces, look at what's happening in your inner world with what you're encountering inside of yourself regarding your thoughts and feelings. And I've been looking at this for years in meditation practice, that um, when somebody goes into meditation practice and they use labels, they use words like anger or fear or sadness to describe emotions, they're using, I believe, you know, socially conditioned terms. They're trying to describe it in a way that, that fits some kind of ready communication, but not really trying to get to know what those feelings are. That's much more nuanced. So if you're, say, looking at something you keep calling anger, um, well, maybe sometimes there's some rage, there's contempt, there's resentment, there's irritation, annoyance. You know, the list can go on. Um, but the thing is, is that how do you attend to your experience so that you can actually see more or feel more closely what it is you're feeling and not have these other words, these other concepts continually get in the way? because they will start to get in the way, because any word, any idea that we will put onto our emotions while we're meditating uh, will probably be used to distance ourselves from them, to manage the experience or control it. Um, and that's not why we're meditating. You know? I mean, of course, at times we do need to manage some of our inner world, but to do it in a different way, to do it in a way in which we're actually with what's going on. We're with that rage or that ill will or that unfriendliness or that little bit of irritation that comes up. And but we're relating to that differently, knowing what it is, instead of trying to just say it's something like anger and it's not very good and I need to get rid of it or get beyond it. Um, because that doesn't help us get to know ourselves. Um, so what I'm trying to, to also get at here, and especially with the analogy, analogy around the faces, is that it's even more so with thoughts in meditation. That many times people just look at thinking as something global. It, all thinking is the same. You know, whether you're planning something or um, having a conversation with somebody in your head or um, having a contemplation about something you've read, uh, it just seems like, you know, if you are meditating and you're um, trying to take your attention away from your thoughts or quiet your thoughts, it just seems like thinking just seems, you know, to be in the way. And it is, because you're not letting yourself actually notice your thinking. You're not connecting with the fact that your mind wants to plan for, you know, a few minutes. Your mind wants to, you know, worry about something that an, ins an encounter you had with somebody brings up a certain kind of dialogue afterwards with that person. That's human. That's what we all experience. 
so how do we start to meditate um, in a way that, that breaks us free from um, the usual ideas we have about thinking and meditation? Because really, thinking in meditation does not need to be a problem. It doesn't need to be something to be gotten rid of. In fact, when you look at various Buddhist texts and, and teachings from other religions on meditation, you find that the word meditation is very close to the word, of contem word contemplation, that there's types of thinking that actually focus our attention and get us more concentrated. In fact, it's probably easier to get concentrated on a thought than it is on your breath. And this is something that we probably can all experience. We, we know, say, when we're maybe even working on a math problem or reading a good book or thinking through um, something that uh, in a calmer, you know, quieter way, that we find that um, time goes by quickly that uh, we're, we're in that um, activity, that there's a way the mind is really concentrated. So um, there are kinds of thinking then that you might find that you've been pushing aside in your meditation practice that actually could be utilized to focus your attention more, that may actually be very helpful, beneficial kinds of thought. Um, and that our thinking at times you know, is something that we seem to judge by its content. You know, like there's something wrong about thinking about work while you're meditating, or there's something wrong about um, certain unspiritual thoughts while you're supposed to be sitting down the cushion, cushion being more spiritual and pure. Um, well, you know, that gets in the way of knowing your experience. It just becomes a way to defend yourself or um, you know, divert your attention away from what it is that's going on with you. Um, my take on it is that uh, when you are able to relate to your thinking meditation in a kinder way, gentler way, and let yourself actually even think on the cushion, you have full permission to have whatever thoughts you want to go in any direction you want, you may find that actually you start to have fewer thoughts, that the thinking kind of goes and dies of its own. That certain areas that are a focus of interest, may, you may be able to choose to put your attention there. Um, so that thinking becomes a part of your practice, not an impediment to practice. Um, and then you might wonder, well, you know, what about those thoughts that seem to be obsessive? What about the thinking that just seems to be repetitive, it just loops around and around, and, you know, I can't tolerate it outside the sitting, much less inside the sitting. Um, well, uh, those thoughts actually may have more to them. They may be trying to say something to us. You know, they're the hardest thoughts perhaps to listen to, but if you keep hearing the, the thinking that's going on, that's just say about a, you know, like a worry, because worry is often very repetitive for us, um, you might find that um, there's something in the tone of voice in the worry, there's something, you know, in how your mind is trying to get you to act or do something. Um, there's a history around it. Uh, there are things in the experience that aren't just, you know, trying to stop the worry or tell yourself something that that's, this isn't a problem or go away. There are things that probably are, t are there for you to become more interested in. And that's what I would suggest with people is that... Um, you know, when the Buddha talked about samsara, 
you know, the, our basic nature of existence, he used a word that meant cycling, you know, that's things that keep looping and cycling through, that's uh, repetitive. And that's the kind of experience that, of course, we want to be able to escape from, but I think we also need to be able to feel that we can face it, that we can know it. And um, in a meditation sitting, you might find it's a perfect place to do it. Because one advantage of meditating, especially sitting still and allowing your thinking to go on and noticing more about it, is that you're not going to do anything about it while you're sitting. You're not going to send an email, call somebody. You're not going to, you don't even need to make a plan. You can just stay with what it is you're thinking. Um, it's a perfect place to allow it, which makes me or has had made me wonder for all these years why more people aren't allowing it. Why they're not just saying um, you can meditate, you can have your thoughts, your emotions, um, be aware of sounds in your body, but then there's the breath. And I think that becomes the problem. That most meditation teachings, you know, and this is something you can test out, you don't have to take me on faith here, um, focus so much on the breath and on breathing that uh, what happens is, is that thinking is always in conflict with breathing. Um, and this has been known for a long time. Um, it was discovered in the 19th century by the introspectionists you know, in America that basically when they would sit and do some of their, their work in you know, trying to introspect, they kept finding that trying to attend to the breath would cut thoughts. You know, which is a good thing. So you, you hear that, that um, instruction all through it. It will work. But it works at a certain cost because it turns thinking into something that is in opposition, that's in conflict, that's a distraction. Um, and so the only thing I would say about that is that uh, it is harder to become aware and allowing of thinking if you're also bringing your mind always back to the breath. Another side to that, and you can test this out too, is because the breath is moving and changing, you find that you're having to keep track of it. And so you're having to use a certain kind of thinking to keep track of your, of your breathing, and your other kind of thinking, your mind wandering, is getting in the way of that. And so it, it creates a certain kind of tension, something that you can test. Um, so I remember once, um, you know, sitting down with, with um, Jack Cornfield and various other teachers at, um, in Joshua Tree during one of their retreats. In fact, Ruth was there. <laughs> it, was a, it was a great opportunity to spend time with her. Um, and Jack asked me, you know, like, you know, with all this allowing of thinking, which we also teach, <laughs> um, why are all my students, or why are many of the students having difficulty with thinking? And so I told them this whole thing about the breath. And and he said, yeah, you know, yes, that sounds reasonable, but you can't, but I, I knew, you know, you can't change what you teach at its foundation. You can't just say, I'm not going to teach breath meditation anymore after teaching it for 20 years and relying on it. Um, so I believe they have to find a, a different way into thinking, to looking at thinking, which they have if you um, follow some of their teachings. Um, but... Um, the instruction I gave you about being aware of the body, that actually enables you to be more aware of thoughts and emotions. Um, mostly because uh, you can be aware of the touch of your hands, touch of your feet, um, any external contact of your body, 
because it doesn't require thinking to go on. It doesn't require an additional train of thought. Now, if you were moving sensations through your body, like in body scanning, um, that requires another kind of thinking. So that won't work as well. Um, but if you're, in a sense, not adding a, a certain kind of thinking into the meditation, you may find that as you sit, your thoughts will come through, your feelings will come through, and there'll be a way that a, a sort of natural kind of um, involvement in them and detachment starts to form. Um, and so that's why I gave you those beginning instructions, and, and hopefully if you, you know, try those out you know, some, at some point, or if you'd like to, uh, you'll find that um, uh, either things I'm saying are verifiable, or they just don't fit within your experience. So I'd like to end the talk here, and just open it up for any questions. Would you like to be the purveyor of the microphone? The microphone is very important and very helpful. It, the more you point it towards you, the more it actually carries sound. And you're not only doing it to speak into this is a gift to those of us in the room, but it's also a gift. Oh, I forgot to say hi. Hello, those of you out on the internet. Um, uh, many people, I don't know how many are watching right now, but sometimes within a week, more than 100 or 150 people watch these. So more people attend PIMC that way than here. And so I invite you to speak into it because they can hear you. So, and please say your name when you get Thanks. My name's Kate. Um, one of the things that I um, normally experience is an allowance for thoughts to come through and be observed. There's not a rejection of them. But like most of us here, I bring my attention back to my breath. What I've found is when there's not rejection of thoughts, they just kind of settle on their own unless there's something really, really, really pulling. And then, of course, I turn towards that. But I don't experience um, the expectation that I won't have thoughts or that it's not okay. That being said, the intention to follow the breathing and to create space for me feels like making room for things that I'm not thinking, making room for things that I don't understand yet, making room for um, the awareness to create a new idea or new information or new way of being, that I wonder if that would happen if I were letting the mind fill with the thoughts I already know and have. Does that make sense? Very good sense, very good question. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, it's kind of um, puzzling, you know, to really get a sense of where, where do our insights come from? You know, like how are we actually getting new ideas or perceptions about ourselves? you know, um, which part of our practice is it coming from? Is it coming from staying with our body or breathing or sounds and getting quiet and settled in that way? Coming from focusing on, you know, a mantra or light or an object or allowing thoughts and feelings into sitting like I'm proposing. 
And um, I think that we get slightly different insights from different angles um, and that they're helpful. Um, so uh, what, what I would say um, from my experience with um, many of the body-based practices is that the insights seem to follow something more phenomenological. They seem to follow um, an understanding how things arise and pass away or that there's no real substance or so self in this, you know, that there's a, uh, there's a kind of a way of, um, of understanding what I would consider to be um, uh, almost linear experience, you know. Uh, with uh, this kind of approach of looking at thoughts and emotions, the insights really do seem to be a bit more um, about relationships and how I am emotionally in, in situations, my, the way my thoughts lead me to certain actions, the kind of intentions for the future that you start to notice kind of like the various things that make up our um, you know, social life and interaction with others much more. Um, you know, but the mind also quiets down quite a bit and so there are opportunities for greater awareness of the body. Um, say if I you know, or someone taught, you know, just be aware of your thoughts with no instruction about the body. It wouldn't actually work so well because you, you actually, in meditation, need to have a foundation. You need to have something that you come back to that is physical, either breath, body, sounds. And so um, what I discovered, and this was like 30 years ago, was that the body seemed to be the better place to come back to for aware allowing thoughts and emotions. Oh, you're welcome. Yes. Hi, I'm Liz, and I'm in one of the spiritual friends groups where last week our topic was Vipassana, and so we all dove in. Hang on. Um, we dove into a little bit about Vipassana and in particular, I went, I went to Wikipedia and, uh, <laughs> and I've been very curious about samadhi um, mm -hmm. versus vipassana. So these two schools of meditation. So vipassana is insight meditation. Samadhi is uh, meditation for concentration. And as you were speaking, I was trying to place your technique in those two lineages. One of the things that I read, and maybe you can confirm what you're, where you're coming from, is uh, study of the breath supports both schools. It's a very core practice. Mm -hmm. um, Vipassana likes to look at the five aggregates, the, the way we can understand the breakdown of ourself from body to feelings to mind objects all the way up to consciousness, where samadhi really always tries to get you an object of concentration. So in your, I forget what you call your practice, recollection meditation? Recollective awareness. Recollective awareness. So are you focusing on the top of the aggregates or are you verging into samadhi with the practice of concentration? Okay. Um, I've had this question asked before from a different angle. Um, um, do you mind if I make a slight uh, uh, correction on terms? Okay. Um, that the actual distinction is between vipassana and samatha. Um, samadhi is a, like a subset of samatha. And samatha refers to any practice that helps us develop more tranquility in inward collectedness. 
And that's so samadhi is a way in which our mind becomes inwardly focused, inwardly collected. So it might be an internal image or sound or a sensation or even the breath. But um, uh, those practices um, often are done where there's some external object that you, you know, like you stirred a candle flame or something, and you bring that inside and you um, try to create an inner object to, to be absorbed on. So, um, what I'm trying to get at here is that um, the Buddha actually said, well, there's vipassana, samatha, samatha, vipassana, vipassana, samatha, that you actually can do a combination of vipassana and samatha, of, of insight and investigation and awareness and developing more tranquility and concentration. Um, and so, that's the way I see it. Um, Actually, when I first was developing this approach, um, the way I presented it in Buddhist terms um, was that um, when we sit down to meditate, we encounter the five hindrances. That usually when we first sit down, we're, we're restless or we're worried or we're, you know, a bit um, lethargic, lazy. Uh, we have maybe some ill will left over, some desire or craving, and we're probably confused. You know, we have moments of doubt and confusion. Um, and to be able to sit with that and to notice that um, helps you kind of get through these hindrances, these, these obscurations. Um, and that will lead, lead, it's another way to develop tranquility. And you can experience that too. When you look at it, it's, tranquility may not be just focusing on your breath, it's the absence of the ill will you were carrying with you. It's the absence of the restlessness that you had, of the worry. Um, that's what the Buddha was actually referring to. So if you look at those experiences, um, you're going to also look at your thoughts and feelings. Um, in fact, my earlier, earliest instruction manual in 1995, I basically said, well, you go through these, you look at these hindrances, and you start to understand that you belong in the meditation. The hindrances are you, <laughs> you know? So instead of trying to get rid of yourself in the sitting, you know, just accept yourself. And of course, that's been uh, a constant theme in the development of um, insight practice over the last two decades. Uh, I hope that answered some of your question. Okay, great. Um, okay, I'm Kyla. Um, can you just speak a little bit more to your instruction about if you feel sleepy, go into the sleepiness regarding the hindrances? Yeah, okay, good, thank you. You were really picking that up. Um, okay. So I do have a chapter of that um, in my book um, on learning meditation, um, where I write more about it. Uh, this has, first of all, it has to do with the translation issue. That um, the word that gets, or the combination of words that get translated as sloth and torpor, as a hindrance, um, these were words that had a kind of Christian overtone and that were more common like in the early translations from in the early 1900s. The actual words when, when are, I think, closer to laziness and apathy. 
So it's not about getting sleepy, it's about how we're lazy about our experience. We're, we're lazy meditators. And you notice there's a, there's a difference. If you're apathetic, you know, or indifferent, um, you might find that that also is a hindrance. Um, so uh, when we get relaxed in meditation, which all of us will do, we'll start to slump, we'll start to lean, um, we'll go towards sleep, and that's just part of our ordinary relaxation. Uh, for many of us, you know, um, when we go towards sleep, um, the tendency, of course, will be to fall asleep. But if, you, if you're meditating, you're sitting upright, and you have an intention, say, to let yourself go towards sleep but not fall asleep, you may find that you go into a hypnagogic state and you sort of skim above sleep and you come back up. And, that, and I found this in a particular um, Buddhist sutta where, um, where the Buddha was saying, basically, if you want to overcome... Um, you know, laziness and, and you know, lethargy, this whole, that whole area, um, focus on inner, inner light, on the inner light that comes up when you're meditating. Um, and that's basically what starts to happen when you go into hypnagogic states. Your mind will start to see lights and colors, as many of us, or you may hear some snippets of conversation or something that sort of brings us a bit more awake. Um, so, um, I don't see the relaxation or drowsiness as a, as a hindrance, as, as the, it's, but it just depends on how you use it, on how you, you know, in a sense, navigate that experience. Um, the other side to it is that I, I realized early on is that if I gave the instruction to allow thoughts, I had to give the instruction to allow drifting, because the two actually go together in meditation. If you if you stop yourself from drifting, you know, you're stopping your mind from sort of forming certain kinds of thoughts. You're, start, you're, you're, you're interrupting an experience that um, I believe can actually uh, be beneficial. And so I've taught people over the years how to develop more samatha, more tranquility, by letting themselves go towards sleep and slowly wake up. Uh, yes, the woman in black was next. Hi, Chanel is my name. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to um, using meditation to manage anxiety, especially if you're in the middle of being really activated with that. Um, just because I was thinking if you're going, allowing your th thoughts, that that would actually make it worse, but you're saying it's gonna, it would make it better. So I'm just wondering how that works and if there's, um, if you have any advice on sort of technique or anything. Right, it really depends on um, the intensity of the anxiety um, and your capacity to tolerate it at that intensity, you know, for meditation. Um, so if you're having a panic attack or something, it might be incredibly difficult to sit for anybody, even an accomplished meditator. Um, but if you're having, you know, like just mild anxiety about things going on, um, you might find that if you uh, sit in the way I'm talking about and really allow the feelings to come up, um, let yourself even notice the thoughts that you're anxious about, uh, you may find that um, because you're connecting with it in a kinder, gentler way, you're not kind of resisting it or pushing it, uh, it still may spike a bit, but it can also lessen. It can also get de help develop that tolerance, you know. Um, and I use the word tolerance here rather than acceptance because acceptance seems to be 
artificial. You know, like you're, you're trying to accept something you really can't stand. Um, tolerating is actually more honest with ourselves. Um, and I think if we use language that's honest about um, what it is we're experiencing and doing at any given time, we're more connected with the experience. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Hi, my name is Barney. I saw on a, I had a Facebook posting somebody sent to me. A person, there were four people looking out the window. One was on the bottom ledge where just the eyes were peeping over the bottom ledge. Another one was so tall that <coughs> the top ledge was beneath their nose so they couldn't see outside. And another person was to the left margin. It was just staring at a wall. And then the fourth person was looking straight out into, uh, uh, straight through the middle of the window. And I was wondering the traps that we fall into, uh, whether we go through a series of evolution between too little but dangerous, too much, then we're staring into a wall, or wrong use, where we're on the left side of the window. And then finally there's that, that final view wondering whether we go through that progression. Well, I can test it. Um, I think, you know, um, I won't be able to use your analogy because I, it's, it's, it's not necessarily how I think, but it's a good one. For It's obviously communicated it. Um, uh, in, in various Buddhist teachings, um, there's a, there's a particular word that has to do with um, distortions or, or corruptions, you know. Um, and basically even, you know, like views, like a view of self is, would be considered a distortion or a view of permanence. So when you hear teachings on impermanence, what they are meant to do is to, to correct um, a faulty way of understanding things. Uh, so the way I see it is that um, the... The Buddhist teaching is, is not about a right view, it's about uh, a way to correct errors in how we, we see ourselves and how we see others and how we see our experience. And so that we actually come into our experience, like I began the talk with, say, social conditioning or certain concepts, certain language around experience that um, uh, we've believed in, they seem to, uh, you know, we thought they were true, but we start to find, no, they actually are distortions. They, they take us away from looking more clearly to that fourth part, you know, that. Uh, so, um, so that's my sense of it, and it's ongoing work, because we're always being tripped up, you know, by um, what we read, what we hear, you know, new thoughts, new things, even this talk I'm giving, you know. Um, and we have to sort through, well, what are some of the, the kinds of ways of thinking, the things that actually um, are making it a bit more cloudy or um, diverting our attention from what we need to be looking at and what may actually be helping us. Um, so I would say like uh, the Buddhist teaching on dependent arising, on looking at conditionality historically and I think in practice becomes something that helps correct errors, you know. And that's essentially what I'm basing all of my teaching on is that None of our, nothing in our experience arises in isolation. Everything has some association or connection with something else. Um, and that we're trying to really understand those relationships. 
So we're looking at interconnectedness. Um, we're looking at, um, you know, like even uh, as I'm talking about like thinking, we're not just saying I'm having a thought. We're kind of seeing, well, th this thought is also related to a, maybe a past experience, uh, an emotion. Um, it was triggered perhaps by something I heard. You know, uh, it's going in a certain direction for me to accomplish some um, task or say something to somebody. Uh, to understand that it's just not something that just exists in isolation. It's in, it's in relation to other things. Yes. Um, the hello back corner. Oh, okay. Hi, I'm Eliza. Um, this practice was really great for me. Um, this practice was really great for me. Before you said, um, it's okay to just have your thoughts, my mind was like running off on like to-do lists and stuff. And when you said that, suddenly my mind was like, uh-oh, what should I think? And uh, <laughs> that was pretty interesting. And then the thoughts started coming back, but my perspective on them was very different from usual. I'd, I got caught up in them occasionally, but for the most part, I was really watching them. And the coming back to the sensation of my hands when I did get lost in them was very effective. Um, and I found that even some of the usual thoughts that tend to come up in meditation for me, I sort of found some solution or insight about them. Um, it was very powerful, yeah. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for telling me about your meditation sitting. Yes. Um, I should just say a couple of things about how I teach meditation because that um, may help explain some of what I'm saying here. Is um, uh, early on as a teacher, I, I decided you know, not to give uh, much input not to really give guided meditations or tell students how to, what to look at or anything like that. Um, so I relied on what they told me. Um, so I would listen to student interviews, you know, students' reports, sometimes, you know, for an hour or so. Um, I would um, read student journals. I have people who many years have been sending me their meditation journals and I study their journals before having a conversation. Um, so I'm trying to, to teach from a, a vantage point and to develop a way of, of meditating um, for people that comes out of their own subjective experience um, rather than trying to put something onto their experience. Um, so uh, that's why, you know, when I'm saying experiment, test, see how this works, um, it's, to me it's a, that in itself is a teaching. It's uh, you are the, say, you're, you're going to be the only expert or authority on your own experience. Um, I can tell you that. Um, and that how you develop your own ability to become your own teacher, to, um, in a sense, give yourself some skillful guidance and direction in your sittings, um, that is the, the maturing of your meditation practice. That's, that's where this does go for, for people. And, um, and a lot of it really does have to do with being willing to reflect back 
on your experience to to look into it more, to be more interested in it, um, for meditation in itself to be a very rich and profound world to explore. Hi, uh, my name is Vic, and uh, first of all, thank you for coming to visit with us and spending two hours of your time here. Really appreciate that. Um, I, I think if, um, the concept that touch is somehow more primal and requires less thinking than breath mm -hmm. is a new concept. I think it makes sense. Um, I, I wonder if there's anything from an evolutionary standpoint which actually bears that perspective. Um, but I think the real question I had is, um, you said body scans require a certain amount of effort and thinking as opposed to just touch. And I'm wondering if just being aware of a body sensation without scanning it. So for instance, I find that a lot of times I have body sensations in my stomach and just being aware of that is part of my meditation. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's different from touch. It's closer, you know, and um, my experience, um, you know, teaching meditation, hearing people's reports is that almost everybody has some kind of physical sensation that recurs when they meditate. Some people, something in their stomach or chest or head or somewhere. You know, and often those sensations do draw our attention while we're meditating, and I think they serve a similar function as long as you um, don't make a, a big story out of it, <laughs> out of the sensation, you know, create something around um, its meaning or, or what it is, um, and um, as long as you don't try to kind of like make it grow or shrink, that you just kind of let it do what it does. And that's very similar to this external contact. Um, but, but it's also that those inner sensations may, may be connected, of course, to emotions and other things, whereas the external touch is just incredibly neutral. Um, and when you asked about, say, something evolutionary about the hands, it just seemed to me to be common sense that we um, put so much attention into our hands that it's, it's actually a very easy part of the body to focus on. You know, because, you know, type, work, you know, paint, all these things, you know, we're so active in, the, in our hands and so conscious of it that when, when we put our attention there, there it, it's as, as if there's been already so much um, training, you know, to do that, that we're building on, you know. I'm Wiley. And uh, I love what you just said about the hands because I realized that I had such a wonderful experience by focusing on my hands instead of my breath. Mm -hmm. And I think in the past when I used to try to meditate, the breath was also a bit of a source of anxiety because of the holding of the breath. Um, and my hands are used for playing music and art and so many other things that it's just a wonderful spot for me to focus on. Mm -hmm. So I really love that. And uh, your idea of just letting any thoughts come into your mind while we're sitting here, all my thoughts just kind of went into nothingness. And so I was 
kind of surprised and curious, but, you know, thinking, okay, that's just how this is, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, but that's never really happened to me before so quickly, I guess, just like right away. And, um, I thought that was pretty amazing <laughs> way to experience meditation. Um, so I don't know that I really have a question other than just, you know, uh, it was just a delightful experience for me, and I, I just thought, well, gosh, the last few weeks I've actually had a few really bit in, bad interactions with people that have created a lot of anxiety for me, three different times, uh, really hostile, so I've had lots of looping thoughts and everything, so I really thought uh, some of that would come up, and it just didn't at all. It was just a, a delightful exercise in feeling the waves of being. Thank yes. you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, and that's... Um I mean, it's always very encouraging to hear how this works. Um, sometimes when people hear me talk about you know, being aware of thinking meditation, they get this idea that they're supposed to be thinking. Um, <laughs> when actually what I'm saying here is um, that changing your relationship to your thinking will reduce the struggle and conflict with it and will create a more peaceful you know, internal atmosphere, so the, most likely you'll have less thinking. The worst case would be you'd have just about the same as watching the breath, you know? Um, so uh, I would say, you know, to, to really kind of give this, um, you know, if you have a good experience and it seems trustworthy, you know, just trust it and see where it goes. Um, any instruction, any practice we take up will probably um, work for a while, and then we might find we get certain stuck in a certain way. And th this is no different. Um, so, you know, I'd be, since I have to end the talk, I'd just like to say, um, you can always um, read some of what I've written, my, my books, or go to this website, um, recollectiveawareness.org. Um, has a lot of instructions and things. I also have videos and talks, and the books for sale, are novels. They're not, um, but they're novels about meditation and Buddhism. Um, uh, and one of them, uh, titled Behind Closed Eyes, I wrote in 1999. And it's really about people coming to this kind of practice from having done, you know, uh, more Goenka Vipassana, Mahasi, Metta. And then they find this kind of instruction, and I go into their experiences of that. So, um, you know, can just look them, look through them. I'll donate a copy of each to uh, PIMC anyhow. Okay, so um, I, th I think, what, one more? No, I'm sorry, do we have, are we out of time? I don't know what the time is. No, 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 you can take another question. All right, I just, okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, my name is KB, um, and forgive me, this is sort of a place where I'm confused, so I may be inarticulate in expressing my place. But I guess what I, you brought up something very interesting, the, the concept of um, apathy as opposed to tiredness. Mm -hmm. And this is something I'm struggling with right now. I'm trying to figure out if I have tr uh, uh, some of the thoughts and patterns that I have developed over my life. I'm wondering if cer certain things don't bother me because 
I have covered them up or buried them or just gotten used to developing a pattern to leapfrog them mm-hmm. or whether I'm actually really over it, <laughs> you know, and I've actually, I'm okay, I'm, I've grown up, but it doesn't bother me so much. And there are certain things that I'm just having difficulty trying to determine um, which those are. And I'm just wondering if you, could, if you could speak a little bit to that if you have anything to say. <laughs> okay, well, it doesn't sound like you have apathy. Um, maybe apathy is not the word, but if I'm not feeling reaction that it seems to me I should be feeling, is it because I've jumped it, I've buried it, or because I'm over it? Yeah, that's a, well, that's a good question. I think only you'll be able to truly answer it. Um, I can give you, you know, uh, something on that. You know, one, one little thing is that... Um, you know, when we look at, um, how do you say, like behaviors and emotional states and reactions to things, there is uh, like this wish that we would be over things and that it would be complete. And so some of our difficulty when they come back is that we're, we're not satisfied with incompleteness. You know, just go, go, letting ourselves kind of realize we've gone a certain distance um, around something, around an issue, um, and it's settled a bit, and it's, it's not coming back so much, but you know, a few years later, it might get triggered and come back. And then you're ready to look at it. And, you know, I mean, at least I would hope that that would be part of one's practice, to be willing to, to re-engage anything that comes up inside of us that's troublesome or problematic. You're welcome. All right. Do they do something, or do they? <laughs> I mean, do the kids do something, or? Do they do something? Well, we do is we do a closing circle. Okay. They're very much a part of the final. I see. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> very helpful. So please uh, join us in the big circle. And anyone who would like to join us to let your, your inner child loose and be in the inner circle, you're welcome. <laughs> Hi. Are we just us? Yeah. Oh. Our other friends already left. <laughs> oh, I see. All right, well. I guess I know who's going to sing. Come on now, we we got. Let's get a couple of other people in here. Come on in. Be brave. It's the, it's the inner sanctum. This. Oh, that's better. Thank you. Yay! All right. I'm not touching. I'm not so please find a hand to hold if you're willing. Hmm. Contact. Please give the hand on the left a little squeeze. We communicate so much through this contact. And the one on the right a little squeeze. And these minds which are capable of thinking anything Why not have them think a kind thought for the person on your right? Whatever would be your most 
generous possible thought in this moment. And the person on your left. And then around this circle, from the right hand through your heart to the left hand and out and around this little circle in the middle or the bigger circle outside. Let's imagine that this circle includes the hands of all the people in the homes around us. The hands of all the people in Portland. And, and in fact, all the people everywhere on the planet, our true family. And then beyond them to our brothers and sisters of the air, the earth, and the waters. And so this, in a way, is a practice of relaxing back into our being, our interbeing. With every breath we breathe the oxygen from our tree, brothers and sisters, and we borrow these minerals in the body and the water for a few days, a few months. And in our culture today, we, we acknowledge a particular aspect of being which is that of mothers. We all came into the world through a mother. And I like to think of mothers as those beings who in this lifetime played the role of mother. And to be grateful for this person who actually made enormous sacrifices to bring us into the world. Now some of us had very difficult experiences with mothers. Others were more easy. But remembering that something I hold very dear is that everyone always does the best they can given the conditioning they've experienced. So honoring these persons who in your lifetime, or this person who in your lifetime played the role of mother. Let's particularly include her in this circle, whether she's here on the earth still or has gone on. May all beings everywhere share in the merits of our practice. And today, particularly this person who played the role of mother, and I invite to the altar of our hearts, Ruth Dennison, who for, for almost 30 years, I always sent a Mother's Day card to my other mother. May she too share in the merits of our practice. So, and now I don't think I even ask who's gonna sing. Is it on? Is it, can I see it for a sec? Thanks. Hello, 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 yes. You're the one, my dear. We'll all join in with you. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you. That was great. Well, now everyone gets to make a wish and take a very deep breath and everyone in the room gets to help. You ready? To blow out the candle on the proper count. 
One, two, three. <gasps> Whoa, having woo <laughs> So relinquishing these hands, please introduce yourself to the persons on left and right. If it's potluck Sunday, it doesn't matter if you didn't bring anything, please come and join in. Thank you to those of you who joined us on the internet. Thank you, Jason. And onwards. Hello, Paul. <laughs>